0: working through this um, advent season we've been lighting candles to remind us of the various aspects of that seems really hot brad i don't know if that's because i'm standing on the monitor or what <clears throat> uh, the various aspects of the advent uh, event and so advent means the coming and so as we're focusing on the coming of christ the coming of our savior we recognize that jesus came Because we had a a need for a Savior. He came to save us from lighters that don't light. He did not come for that. You can tell because if he'd come for that, the lighter would light. There we go. He came to save us because we couldn't save ourselves. Our sins permanently and irrevocably separate us from God. God is holy. God is other. We're not like that. And the reality is our sin puts us in a situation that we can't fix. Sin can't be removed by good deeds. So we needed a Savior to come. And God promised a Savior from the very beginning. Right in the garden, as soon as sin entered, God promised that one would come to save us. And Jesus came because God keeps his promises. So when God promised that Messiah would come, that a king would come to fight for peace... That prince of peace is a a champion, a warrior. He would come to establish a kingdom of perfect peace. And he will yet do that. God keeps his promises. So we can know that whatever we're in, whatever situation we're in, we don't have any reason to doubt God. We have reasons to doubt one another. We let each other down all the time. But God doesn't. He keeps his promises. We talked about the fact that we have this this yearning inside, a longing for a Savior. And Jesus came to save us because He is the only one who can fulfill our deepest desires, the longing of our heart. We have a sense that there's something wrong with the world. Even before we recognize and acknowledge God, before we recognize Christ as Savior, we still know that there's something broken, there's something missing. And so we long for a fulfillment, we long for something to, to give us significance and meaning, and we pursue all sorts of things, but the only thing that can actually fulfill that longing is Christ. Today, as we celebrate this final Sunday of Advent, we recognize that Jesus came to save us because God's plan is perfect, God has a plan. And it's not like he just came up with a plan. This has always been the plan. That he would establish his kingdom. That he would restore what was broken. And that will come to pass. The problem that we'll see today as we go through this is that... Man, if you're on the wrong side of that, judgment comes. With that establishment of God's kingdom, when the king arrives all which is outside or contrary to the kingdom gets destroyed in the judgment. But because God is merciful, because God is merciful, He makes a way for us to be saved. That's why Jesus came. Because God's perfect plan also displays God's perfect mercy. Tomorrow night on Christmas Eve, we will light the the center candle that final candle known as the Christ candle to remind us of this savior who has arrived and will arrive again. Let's pray and we'll begin our service our sermon time. Father in heaven you are Lord and you have sent your messiah your Christ save us. Your plan has been established. From before creation. You have always known. You have always been sovereign. Lord help us today. To receive Christ as king. To worship him. To place our hope in him. To marvel at him. Father throughout this message, I pray that you would speak. It's easy for me to stand up here and talk. That's not going to change anybody's life. We need you. Help us to hear from you today, Lord. Father, we confess as a body that we are sinful. Even even now, even as we are gathered here, Lord, we we bring so much junk to the table. We have nothing to offer you, so we come empty-handed with needful hands. <coughs> we seek your face. Father, as we, as we work through the passages today and we work through the, the beauty of this great hymn of the faith, help us personally to crown Jesus King in our lives. May you receive all the glory and honor today. We pray this in the name of your precious Son, our Savior Jesus. Amen. Today we're going to be working through that great hymn of the faith that we often see as a Christmas carol, although it isn't. Joy to the world. As of the late 20th century, joy to the world was the most published Christmas hymn ever. It is published in, in hymn books in all different denominations, and yet it wasn't even intended to have anything to do with Christmas. Isaac Watts is one of the great hymn writers of all time, wrote a collection of over 750 hymns. That's a lot of hymns, in case you're not sure. Took me a long time just to kind of change some words to uh, somebody else's hymn. He came up with 750 hymns full of doctrinal meat. Just not, not, you know, the the worship stuff that we see today. There are some beautiful worship songs out there. But so many of our worship songs today are are just emotive. They're, They're subjective feelings only. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. And that's great. There's a place for that. But the truth of the gospel should be in our songs, in our hearts, in our mouths. And Watts was known for that. He was actually very controversial at the time. When he uh, began writing hymns, even as a a little boy, he had a gift for verse. He just naturally seemed to rhyme things. And it actually got him in trouble with his dad because he uh, sometimes would be a little bit... uh, (laughs) A little bit chagrined, his dad was very strict and very practical, and a little boy who rhymed wasn't really what he had in mind, and so uh, that would cause some conflict between him and his father. But his father did pass along to him a passion for Jesus Christ, a passion for the Word of God, and a notion of of nonconformity. In England, those were referred to as nonconformists who did not. Uh, adhere to or ascribe to the teachings or the polity of the Church of England. The Baptists the Puritans, even dissenters within the Anglican Church who uh, said, wait a minute, we think there are some doctrinal issues here we think we can do better. Watts' father was among them. Watts too, while a member of the Anglican Church would be a dissenter And as as Watts went along, he would introduce, he would produce these hymns that he would introduce to the church that really ticked people off. Because up until that time, what was sung in church was the Psalms, literally the Psalms set to music. In most Reformed churches, they sang from a a hymn book that had been translated by Calvin into the French, uh, that was his native tongue, and then they would retranslate into English, and they would sing these songs, either in Latin or in their uh, particular tongue in their country, songs directly from the Psalms. Watts did that as well, but he went farther. He, he felt that this truth of God's Word needed to also have a certain subjectivity in our response, in our emotion to it. That it should be more than just hearing God's word, it should be responding to God's word. Feeling as well as hearing and knowing God's word. And so he wrote songs that were the equivalent of modern uh, worship songs in that they were intended to produce an emotion. People in the church didn't like that. and He became uh, sort of an outcast. Some considered him anathema because... This is, whoa, wait a minute, hold on, dude. You're, you're some kind of crazy heretic. You can't be doing that. But he clung to the scriptures, and he stuck with it. And the people in the pews were most often hungry for this. They wanted something to connect with. And so uh, Watts did what he could to try to connect with the, uh, with the tradition of singing the Psalms. And in 1719... It's a long time ago, right? In 1719, Watts did what Calvin did, sort of. Calvin translated the Psalms. Isaac Watts chose to paraphrase the Psalms and to set them to music so that they could be used in church in a way that would would, uh, connect with the English language. And his uh, Psalm collection was clearly not intended to be marketable. Check out the title of it. The Psalms of David imitated in the language of the New Testament and applied to the Christian state and worship. How's that for a catchy title? He wasn't interested in the market. He was interested in the meat of it. So in one of his paraphrases, his paraphrase of Psalm 98, which you heard read for us this morning by the band as we began worship, became eventually, the latter portion of that, became as it was a poem, became what we now know as the hymn, Joy to the World. Now, he was not in any way writing this to be a Christmas poem or a Christmas hymn. And yet, it's the most published Christmas hymn of all. As we see this, what he's doing is going through the the Psalms and what was unique about the paraphrases that Isaac Watts used... As he went through and paraphrased each of the psalms, he did it through the lens of the New Testament. So he looked, rather than coming from the psalms themselves and looking forward, he came as a New Testament believer, looking back through the writings of Paul, looking back through the Gospels, seeing Christ as the focal point of all of the psalms. So as he paraphrased the psalmist words, he did so with an eye toward Christ. Christ as Messiah turn if you would to Psalm 98 we're going to start there today then we'll look at the Christmas story in light of this if you don't have a Bible of your own you're going to want one we've got some on the table at the back there just raise your hand and uh, let's see I'm going to have Michael get it he's younger so Michael will get you a Bible if you need one just put your hand up because you want to you want to be able to read God's word for yourself not just hear what I tell you the book of Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible generally speaking We're going to be looking at Psalm 98. Here's the psalm that this entire hymn is based on. Sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made His salvation known and revealed His righteousness to the nations. He has remembered His love and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now as, he, as the psalmist writes this, this psalm is describing something that the psalmist perhaps saw in part but did not see in its, completion, nor, in its completion nor do we see it in its completion today. We recognize that the world is not full of joy and the Lord does not presently rule as described here. In fact, in the New Testament, Satan is called the prince of this world. This has been given over to the enemy for a time. And in the midst of this, the psalmist writes these glorious words, shout for joy. Let all of nature sing with us as we celebrate God as our king who will judge the earth. As we do this, we need to recognize that the prophecies of Scripture have been fulfilled in part. They were at the time as David saw prosperity and God's blessing, but not in perfection. Solomon saw God's blessing, prosperity, shalom, but not in perfection. As Israel continued to reject God's will, to do their thing instead of God's thing. Sounds a lot like us today, doesn't it? God then rejected Israel, but not completely. He never abandoned his promise, but he did say, listen, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to discipline you like an unruly calf, and you will suffer for a time. But I know the plans I have for you, and they're good plans. They're plans to prosper you, not to harm you to give you a future and a hope. He said that in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, to a people that he was sending into exile. They were about to go into exile in Babylon for 70 years, and God said, I have a plan for you. I'm not done. Even at the end of the Old Testament, in the very last book, we see in Malachi that God says the same thing. I'm not done yet. Throughout the prophets, every time God speaks judgment, judgment of the wicked, there is a combination of joy and tears, because the way for peace and God's rule to come is for wickedness to be destroyed. Now, we all can agree that that's a good thing, right? Does anybody not want wickedness to be destroyed? Raise your hand if you want wickedness to prevail. Anybody? I didn't think you'd probably raise your hand if you did, so... You know, kind of a trap. But the reality of it is, we should be very fearful about that. The book of Romans tells us, quoting Isaiah, that there's no one righteous. None of us truly seek God. We seek to make God in our own image. It's only the regenerate, after God captures our heart, who actually see God and seek God. We need Him in us before we look for Him to get in us. It's a conundrum. So if we want God's judgment to come, if we pray, oh God, slay the wicked, we better pay attention to the fact that we fall among them in ourselves. We're separated from God, and we can't fix that with our religion, with our good deeds, with writing a check to the church or showing up on Sunday morning or taking care of the poor. None of that erases the stain of sin. Therefore, when God brings judgment, no one can stand But, the good news, the gospel, is that God didn't wait until that final judgment to send the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. He sent the king to Israel in Bethlehem for us Gentiles, for all of us who are outside of God's family all of us who have done our own thing instead of God's thing, all of us who are imperfect and therefore destined for destruction. We see that even in nature. Everything that is imperfect will be burned up. That's all of us. But we have the opportunity to receive our King. Let's press forward. I'm going to... In the interest of trying to stay on track here because I'm very, very excited about this truth. I want to try to stay excited about my outline. So I'm going to uh, do a little more reading for you than what I might uh, ordinarily do. Jesus came. He came because we needed saving and couldn't save ourselves. He came because God promised he would come and God keeps his promises. He came because only He could fill our deepest longings for peace and righteousness, our longing for God. For all these reasons, Jesus came. As we contemplate and celebrate these aspects of His coming, let us not overlook the very fact that He did indeed come and that He is coming back again. The fact that Jesus came to save us tells us much about God and life. We need a Savior because God is sovereign and mighty beyond our imagination. Think about it for just a moment. If we really knew God, if we really understood God, the only logical response to an encounter with the creator of the universe, infinitely powerful and perfect, is absolute terror. Francis Chan does a great study on this, by the way. If you ever want to check something out, look at at Francis Chan on the fear of God. It's not something we work up, that we have to work up a reverent fear. That's what I was taught in Sunday school when I was a kid. It's not being afraid of God. But listen, you don't have to work up being afraid when you have a powerful being and you're standing as their enemy. Right? I didn't have to work up a reverent fear for my father when I knew that I had disobeyed and daddy showed up. And I'm caught red-handed. All I could do is this. Because I knew what was coming. Fear was the appropriate response. When we see God, and we recognize His perfection and His holiness, and we recognize the power that speaks the cosmos into existence, the the power that causes angels to cover their faces and feet in humility, There is no other logical response than terror. That's the true fear of God. The good news is to recognize that He loves us. So God is the biggest, as VeggieTales would say, and He's on my side. That's awesome. Back to the script so I don't get too far off here. We need a savior because God is sovereign and mighty beyond our imagination. He is the creator, sustainer, and rightful owner and ruler of all things. We are not his equals. We are not his peers. We dare not, we cannot stand before the holy God. We need a savior because our sin separates us from God. That's physical and spiritual death. And no amount of good deeds can ever remove that sin. We need a savior because we cannot save ourselves. As soon as sin invaded and infected the world, God immediately promised to set things right, to send a serpent crusher who would destroy sin. God's promise of the coming one would be progressively revealed through his word and his prophets throughout the Old Testament period. And always the promise was sharpened on both sides. God would judge and God would redeem His anointed one would bring peace, but the reality of peace would inevitably come with the judgment and destruction of all sin and therefore all sinners. But God also promised mercy and life to be delivered to the repentant. God promised a savior and God keeps his promises. Nonetheless, we can all recognize that sin still seems to hold sway in this world. Instinctively, we know something is wrong even if we don't acknowledge the God of the Bible. We are yearning for the ought to be in a world that doesn't ever live up to that. In our world, we live under a curse. And in this fallen, cursed world, it can never provide for that yearning. The image of God in in us seeks its own reflection. Let me read that again, because I want to make sure we hear it. The image of God in us seeks its own reflection, but seldom finds it because of sin. For all our efforts, schemes, and so called wisdom, we cannot scratch the itch. Only God and the relationship with Him that we were created for can fill our longing for a Savior. Jesus came to do just that. And that really is the point. Half of it, anyway. Jesus came. Jesus came. Let that sink in for just a moment. He didn't have to come. He could have waited. God could have, in his plan, said, you know what? I will restore all things. I will destroy all sin. And when it's time, on the day of the Lord, when judgment comes, everything will be good. Could have, and it would have worked great. But not for us, because we'd have been destroyed. Jesus came. He came to us so that we could be saved. He actually left the glory of heaven and came to deal with our problem. That's a powerful reality. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. If you're in Psalms, go to the right. You're going to be most of the way toward the back of your Bible. In the middle of the New Testament, you'll find Galatians After Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you get into some letters and John. I don't want to leave John out. He'll get his feelings hurt. Go to Galatians chapter 4. Okay, we're just going to pause and read the entire book of Galatians because this is awesome stuff. No? Discipline yourself, Zeiger. Galatians 4, verse 4. Paul writes, But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Think of that Abba. Not It's not Abba. Not that. Not We're not... No. Just no. Think of maybe Daddy, but it's more reverent than that. It's, it's, it's like Papa, my dearest father. That term of endearment that only a son, a daughter, in intimacy with a father who loves them, can cry out. Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Since you're in Galatians, turn a little more to the right. We'll go to the book of Philippians. I will take time to read from the Christmas story, but I want us to see these, these important realities. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be focusing on verses 6 and following, but just so that we get the whole picture, I want you to start with verse 5. Your attitude, your mindset should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, Jesus is God, did not consider equality with God or the status of equality with the Father something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, comes right after the book of Romans, if you're moving around in there. No. I have the wrong verse written down. No, I have the right verse. I'm in the wrong book. <laughs> Goodness gracious. In case you ever wonder, that happens to the pastors, too. We're going to look at verse 21 in particular, but I want to start at the beginning of the paragraph with verse 16. 2 Corinthians 5, starting with verse 16. You know, every time I turn the page, I see more verses I want to read to you. But I'm going to stick with the ones that are written down. 2 Corinthians 5. Starting with verse 16, we're going to focus in hard on verse 21. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Does that sound like good news? That's a joyful thing. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And here's the focus we want to see, why Jesus came. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. One last verse in this introduction, as it were. Turn to the book of John. Back to the left. John chapter 1. You may want to mark it. We'll probably be back here unless I choose to skip it. But this is a crucial passage for us. John chapter 1. This is worth memorizing, by the way. It's not our memory verse for today, but it's worth memorizing. John 1, 12. But for us to get this, we need to back up to verse 10. He was in the world, speaking of Christ, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Here's our focus. Yet, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a husband's will, of a human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Here's the thing. We recognize our sinfulness separates us from God. We recognize that if Jesus came to establish the kingdom immediately, that we would all be lost. If he came to judge and was able to judge without mercy, which is what the, uh, what the picture of judgment in the Old Testament promises, is that justice without mercy will be shown. But God offers Himself, as Paul puts it, so that He can be just and also the one who justifies. He made Jesus, who had no sin, to become, as it were, our sin, so that we could then become his righteousness it's a very simple not easy simple thing Jesus says give me your junk let me give you life as many as receive him as who will, who will say Jesus I want you I am yours save me he won't turn them away instead when we turn to Him, He gives us the right to become children of God, but we must receive Him. We'll talk about that in a moment. If you are outside of Christ today, if you, you maybe you've been in church your whole life, but you've never been confronted with this reality that you are dead in your sins, and you need to be resurrected, to be made alive. And the only way that you can do that is by the grace of God by choosing to receive him, that I invite you to do that today. It doesn't take any jumping through hoops so you don't have to go through a class, you don't have to hit certain levels. It's simply a matter of saying, God, I give up. I give up. I'm done driving. To quote the great theologian Carrie Underwood, Jesus, take the wheel. (laughs) Literally speaking, Jesus, I want you to drive my life. I'm not going to sit around anymore and just think I'm doing good because I'm going to church. You need Jesus. All of us need Jesus. Think of that next time you see somebody wearing a t-shirt that says you all need Jesus. Right? This is the reality for us. I want to invite you into this. The offer is for everyone, to as many as who has received him. To them he gives the right to become children of God. All of this to say, and this is our core reality, that Jesus came to save us because God's plan is perfect. Jesus came to save us because God's plan is perfect. Say it with me Jesus came to save us because God's plan is perfect. It's perfect in that it is just, it is righteous. You cannot have justice and righteousness without punishment for sin. We recognize this. When we see criminals get off in the criminal justice system, we feel a sense of of betrayal. The system is broken. It didn't work. That gang leader got away with something. We hate seeing people get away with stuff. Unless it's us. Then we like it. There's an innate sense of justice built into each of us and yet also a hunger for mercy. This is the image of God in us. We may understand it imperfectly, but we have a hunger for it. Jesus came to save us. Because in God's perfect plan, if it were only judgment, it would be perfect and we would be left out. But in God's perfect plan, mercy according to his plan when the time had fully come in the fullness of time if you have a King James Version God sent his son so that he could be born of a woman his promise in Genesis 3 was that the seed of a woman would crush the serpent's head so that he could be born under the law fulfilling all the righteous requirements of the law for us born of the flesh Just like you and me. So that by placing our hope, our trust in Him. That's what it means in John 3.16 when it says whoever believes in Him. Placing your hope, your trust in Him. He's your only parachute. There is nothing else. Lord, save me else I die. Because of that, God's perfect plan is found in Jesus. Let's, Let's get to the hymn. Now, just a little tip off. We're going to close our service today with singing joy to the world. In case you're thinking, man, they didn't even sing the song. He's talking about it. They didn't even sing it. We want to close with that, with this triumphant hymn. But understand, as we talked about earlier, this is a, a, a hymn that is singing about the kingdom yet to come. When Christ comes to rule and to reign, that's when this joy to the world comes. At least it comes for that which remains. First off, first point, Christ is king, receive him. Christ is king, receive him. Listen to the words of the hymn. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room in heaven. And nature sing. As we saw in the psalm, there's a cry that goes up from nature. We see passage after passage, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. In Romans 8:22, we see that, that all nature is groaning, as in the pangs of birth, waiting for the kingdom to be restored, to be established, and all perfection to be restored. This is what the very rocks and hills are longing for. But for us to really receive the king, we must understand who he is. You can jot down these verses. John 18, 37. John 18, 37. 1 Timothy 6, 15. We're going to turn there in a moment. 1 Timothy 6, 15. Revelation 17, 14. How do you spell Revelation? R-E-V period. That's how you spell it. (laughs) Revelation 17, 14 and Revelation 19, 16. If you're still in the book of John, let's go ahead and turn to to John 18, 37 since I know some of you are still there. I was going to skip it, but I just can't. It's Jesus talking. So we want to hear Jesus speaking. Now, in John 18, Jesus is about to be crucified. He's in the midst of an illegal trial. He's being framed. He's brought up on false charges. And the judge knows it. How about that? Talk about justice, right? And yet hands him over to be crucified anyway. But notice the conversation between Jesus and Pilate. Let's let's start with verse 33. 37 is our focus. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? This is what he's being accused that he said that. Jesus asked, is that your own idea or did others talk talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to, pre- to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now, my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, here's our, here's our focus. Recognize this. Jesus is the king of all creation right now today. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. For this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. He was born the king. Jesus is king of creation already today. He came to earth as well to deal with us. Uh, Turn to the right to to 1 Timothy 6.15. The letters start getting skinnier as you move toward the back. If you get to Hebrews, you went too far. Did I say 2 Timothy? I meant 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Again, our focus is verse 15, especially the latter half of that. We're going to have to, because it's the middle of a sentence, we're going to have to pick up uh, at the beginning of the paragraph, I think really to get it, so Paul is f- finishing his letter to Timothy, and he says this: "But you, man of God, flee from all this evil doing, all this love of money, all this corruption, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when, when you, <coughs> excuse me, to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the sight of God." who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. This appearance, the appearing of Christ. Which God will bring about in his own time. Notice this. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, and Lord of lords. Remember that phrase. You might want to underline that phrase. God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is important for us to recognize. Who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. Whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Keep that in mind as you turn to Revelation chapter 17. Easy to find. Last book in the Bible. Revelation 17, if you go to 18, you went too far. Truly, 17's right before that. So much to read here, but there's one specific thing I want you to see. In verse, 17, uh, verse 14 of chapter 17, it, it's stated again in, in verse 19, but notice this. Remember the phrase we just saw? God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Here in the end, in this final kingdom, this is yet to come in our history. They will make war against the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Say it like you mean it. Jesus Jesus is the Lamb. They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because He is, oh, you need to read this with me, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Now, we just read that God is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. We see once again... That Jesus is God in the flesh. The invisible God made visible for us in Christ. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the King of all creation today. He came to earth for us. And we saw that in Galatians 4. We see it also in John 1.14. And He revealed God to us. Jesus is the revelation of God for us. When we see Jesus, we see God. Not sure about that? Turn back to the book of John. Hopefully you still got it marked. This time we're going to look at chapter 14. John 14. A familiar verse for you. But we're going to see we're going to see more and more of this. Oops. Did I say 14? I was wondering why that didn't look right. We'll read 14:6 and then we'll go ahead and jump ahead or jump back to chapter six. Jesus answered, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Ah, there we go. Okay, we'll go ahead and stay here instead of going back. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Seems like a logical thing, right? If if you know me, you know the Father. Show us the Father. That will be enough. (laughs) It's more than enough, dude. Nobody's ever seen God without dying, right? Jesus answered, What was the question? Show us the Father, right? Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. Jesus reveals God to us. He is the king. He came to earth for us. He revealed God to us. But recognize that we have to receive him. Because he is the king. When the king arrives, and you might, uh, maybe you've seen some old uh, gladiator movies or something, and the emperor comes in. And what happens when the emperor rides into town? Everybody bows down, right? Everybody acknowledges That this king, this emperor, needs to be theirs. They submit, they surrender, they subject themselves to him. What happens if they don't? You're done. You don't stand before the emperor. You receive him as king. We must receive the Lord as our king when we receive him then at his coming it's truly joy we can celebrate when god is on our side or more specifically when we are on his when we're against him only judgment remains joy to the world the lord has come let earth receive her king christ is king receive him secondly we need to see christ reigns over all worship him Christ reigns over all. Worship him. In Watts' paraphrase of the Psalms, we see the second verse to this hymn. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Now just notice that phrase before we even go any farther. The Savior reigns. Now that's an unusual combination of noun and verb. What does a savior do? Somebody tell me what a savior does. A savior saves. We've been talking about that throughout this Advent. He came to save us because we needed a Savior. We looked at the need for a Savior, the promise of a Savior, the longing for a Savior, today the arrival of a Savior, and yet Watson, drawing from the Psalms, says, The Savior reigns. The King reigns. A Sovereign reigns. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Rains, Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. All of nature joins with us in this celebration, in this song, repeating, as it were, the sound of our joy, the echo of our hymns of praise to God, lifted up by trees and rocks and rivers and oceans when all things are set right. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. He's already king, but he will establish his kingdom rule at the day of the Lord. All nature is waiting for this. Jot down Romans 8 20, Uh, specifically verse 22, but Romans 8 20 to 22. We mentioned this verse earlier. I won't have you turn there for the sake of time. But Paul writes of all of nature, all of earth, all of the cosmos, cursed by sin in Genesis 3, is groaning for this day. Yearning, longing, hungering, and yet also hurting. And he compares it to the birth pains that 50% of you can't relate to because you're dudes. But ladies, you might understand this better. Men, we can understand it in part, but imperfectly. Although I still contend that my job was harder. I had to watch my wife be in pain. That's so much harder than being in pain. She might disagree. But ladies, think about the pain that you go through. The travail, to use an Old Testament or an old King James word. The travail that you go through as you're about to have this baby. And yet, you know that on the other side of this comes the glory of the birth of a child. How wonderful. And all of the pain suddenly gets trumped. It gets eclipsed by the beauty of this new life. That's how creation feels. It's going through labor pains. All of the earthquakes and typhoons and hurricanes and all of the the cataclysmic events that we see. It's the earth saying, oh, there's a contraction. (laughs) The time is coming when God's going to say, time to push. And a new heavens and new earth will be born. That's what creation is waiting for. Turn to Psalm 96. Watts borrowed from Psalm 96 as he was putting this together. So he was paraphrasing uh, from Psalm 98. But he also included portions from Psalm 96 in Genesis 3. When you find Psalm 96, we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. Very similar in its content, very similar in its theme, very similar even in in its approach to writing to what we see in 98. 11 and 12, Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it, let the fields be jubilant and everything in them, then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for He comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His truth. God's righteousness, which inevitably brings a harshness. There is an absoluteness to it. There is a standard, and when God establishes it, and all of creation gets in line with this, all of the things that cause us to suffer now will be gone. But there must be a purging. And that too will come. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods and rocks and hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. All nature is waiting and will join us in worship when His kingdom comes into its fullness. Notice this also. Christ reverses the curse. Hope in him. Christ reverses the curse. Hope in him. Now, when we, when we see this, oh man, I got so many verses. We're not going to look them up. We're not going to look them all up. But I do want you to turn to the book of Isaiah. We're going to take a look at a couple of, of uh, passages that you hear a lot at Christmas time. But they're actually not about what happened in Bethlehem, they're about what will happen in the future. And we go through Bethlehem to get there. Bethlehem leads us to Calvary, and Calvary leads us to salvation because the Savior reigns, not just the king and the judge, but the one who comes to save actually is in charge. And we can hope in that mercy. But there's more than that. The curse that we see in Genesis 3:17 and 18 gets reversed through Messiah. Isaiah is just after the Psalms, if you're still looking. We're going to take a look at at chapter 9. You're like, I knew he was going there. We're going to look at chapter 9, chapter 11, and then we'll go back to chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 9, starting with verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Isaiah was thinking specifically of Israel. Luke, reading this, because his emphasis was on all the outcasts, would be thinking as a Gentile, hey, this is a promise for me. In the darkness of my life, a light has dawned in Christ. Verse 3, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat... You have shattered the yoke that burdened them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. He's speaking of the deliverance of, of Israel specifically, extending this out as we see in the New Testament, the deliverance of the oppressed. Because that's what will happen when Christ returns. Bigger than Israel, it's a global picture. Every warrior's boot used in battle Every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. There won't be any need for, that, for this. There won't be any war. There will be fuel for the fire. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Turn the page to chapter 11. Starting with verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse, for those who maybe uh, weren't here recently to hear us talk about this. Jesse was the father of David. So from David's line, the king would come. That was God's promise of Jesse. We see a root come up from this. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his, with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, <clears throat> but with righteousness he will judge the needy. I'm going to just tell you now, this is going to really apply to the next verse, that we, the next verse of the song. I put it in the wrong spot in my album. But the rest of it, uh, as, as we finish this out, gets to the point of this verse. <clears throat> he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide with, by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Here's the portion that was for this verse. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. That's not a reference to Christ as the child, even though we often quote it that way. It's a reference to the perfection, the safety, the innocence, that a little child can lead these wild animals without fear, without harm. The cow will feed the bear. Or will feed with the bear. They already feed the bear. Yeah. Sorry. The cow will feed with the bear, the, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Man, I want to keep reading, but I'm going to, I'm going to stop. The, the picture that we see here is that the natural order that we recognize now, corrupted by sin cursed by the fall is reestablished in a new default, a new natural order, a new heavens and new earth, where animals don't kill each other. That's how it was in Eden. There were no carnivores at the time. That's a conversation for another time, but you you just didn't. There wasn't death. We returned to that state no death. The curse is reversed. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 2. Again, we see the reversing of the curse. This is what Isaiah, son of Amaz, Saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. And we see the the concept develop as you continue through the chapter. But what we need to see here is that our intellect is restored. We're able to see God's word once again perfectly. Right now we see it only darkly. Then we'll be able to see it fully. God Himself will teach us His law and we will respond and receive it and no one will do their own thing instead of God's thing. The curse is reversed. Beyond that, beyond that reversing of the curse, we see that Christ rules perfectly and absolutely marvel at Him. Christ rules perfectly and absolutely. Marvel at him. As we just read in Isaiah, he will rule with this iron scepter, this strength that no one can resist. He will judge, verse 4 of what we just read. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. We saw in chapter 11 that there won't be any more war. There won't be any more uh, reason for this because God will rule absolutely. Notice what Watts writes. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and the wonders of His love. He rules perfectly with truth and grace absolutely in that He makes the nations, He makes the nations prove out His character, the glories of His righteousness and the wonders of His love. It makes sense for us to marvel at him, to be overwhelmed with wonder before this God. There is a power in recognizing him. <clears throat> As we wrap this up, I could go for a couple more hours here, but you want to get home. You'll have to come back and we can talk about it more. Or you can send me messages and we can talk about it more. Or you can call me, my cell phone is in the program, and we can talk about it more. Or you can buy me a coffee, because I do like coffee. And we can talk about it more. Listen, guys, this is the beauty of the church. We do life together. We walk through life together. So get together. Have people come to your house and talk about the glories of His righteousness. Talk about the wonders of his love. When we marvel at him, it makes sense for us to talk about it. When you see something truly amazing, isn't the first thing you want to do to share it with somebody? In the old days, we used to pick up a telephone and call or go and see somebody face to face. Now you just put it on Facebook or Snapchat or some other silly social media thing. But the reality of it is, we need to share that which fills us and overflows because we are caught up in marveling about it. So do that. You're going to celebrate. You're going to get together with people. You're going to celebrate Christmas, right? And you're going to sing Christmas carols, maybe. And you're going to watch Christmas specials. And as much as I love Jimmy Stewart, Christmas is not about Bedford Falls figuring out how to do life. As much as I love Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Rudolph didn't save me. Santa Claus might bring presents to your house, but he doesn't give the gift of life. Why would we spend this holiday season celebrating all of that other stuff and not sing in our hearts joy to the world? Whether you sing it with your mouth at home or not, your heart should be overflowing with that. What a jubilant thing. In the garden, God promised a serpent crusher. The one to come, the seed of woman, would save humanity, destroy the evil one, destroy all the evil, restore life where death had taken hold, reconcile humanity to the Father. Jesus is that Savior, Redeemer, Champion. He came once to reconcile us to God through his atoning sacrifice. And he will come again to restore all things and establish his kingdom of perfect peace. At Christmas we celebrate his birth, but we must also celebrate with an eye toward his return and the fulfillment of all the messianic promises so that we can truly say joy to the world. Let earth receive her king. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have granted us clemency. You have granted us mercy by sending your son, Jesus, not to judge. It's such a beautiful reality when we look at how you've given us the fullness of your promises in Scripture. We all know John three sixteen, Lord. We've heard it so many times, whether we've paid attention or not, we've seen it. We've heard the words that you so loved the world that you sent your only Son so that whoever believes in Him doesn't perish but has everlasting life. But most of us don't recognize the beauty of the rest of the promise and the power of the rest of the warning. Or you say in verse 17 that the Son didn't come into the world to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through Him. The Savior reigns. And yet we must recognize the truth of verse 18. That anyone who doesn't believe in Christ, who doesn't place their hope in Christ alone, stands condemned already. Father, I pray now for every soul that hears my voice that has not surrendered to you, that has not received Christ as king, that they would do so now. And that for those of us who have received Christ as our personal Lord, our king, our master, that we would remember what that means, that we would surrender daily, and that his coming will bring us joy as we look forward to the new heavens and new earth and the perfection of your kingdom. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus.